Welcome to Wonder Tour with Derek Cobb and Drew Perot. Hi, I'm Derek. And I'm Drew. And we are on a journey to become better leaders by touring fantastic worlds and inspiring lore by going on a wonder tour. We connect leadership concepts to story context because it sticks to our brain better. You can find out more at wondertourpodcast.com. We're back. Part two of Inception. We're going to break into the safe in the center of the dream space. I guess at the depth of the dream space, and we're going to find out what's in there. What nugget of truth um, are we going to pull out of this that Christopher Nolan has incepted into our brains? engineering where all your dreams come true (laughs) (laughs) all right we are back um second part of inception here as drew uh introduced us again and um yeah this uh the second part is also brought to you by cobalt engineering well, let's get into the ending here, because this is probably the thing that most of the viewers are most interested in. So, what do we think of the ending? Everybody loves to talk about the ending of Inception. I remember when it came out, having many a conversation uh, over how we thought that it actually ended, having to go back to see it. I think I saw it in theaters three times when it originally came out, and then I've seen it once when it was re-released in theaters since then. I, I've waffled on it back and forth. As we look at the ending of this movie... I don't know if, you know, we're going to have different levels of listeners talking or coming here. Some have probably dug deep into it on the web. Some haven't, Um, you know, some have just thought about themselves or maybe talked to their close friends about it. So I want to lead with the most straightforward and impactful uh, thing about it, which is that in the when you watch the movie at the end, the top kind of it how do you view the top at the end of the movie just tell me how you, how you see the top at the end of the movie derek does it, what does it mean to you <laughs> uh i mean it, it's an inspiring moment you know to see him kind of uh you know face up to the you know this truth we were just talking about in the last ep- you know the last half or the first half of the episode there which was you know that he has been trying to escape this truth for a long time um and it really feels like a good release that, you know, um, he's finally, you know, kind of making sense. And um, I don't know what the way I, I put it to myself was that, you know, he in order to kind of um, process it all, he, he basically says out loud everything he did. Right. And um I think that was the key is that he just went back and told the story to himself again. Um, 
and honestly, I've read this in different, you know, self-development books, you know, they talk about, you know, writing it down, right, write down your memories, you know, um, and, and that's essentially kind of what he did. Um, so that was good. I mean, that's, that, that to me is the top because that's when things started getting easier. Why is that? Say that, say that to me in a different way. Sorry, I'm still I'm struggling to grasp exactly the last metaphor that you're pulling through. Uh, I mean, he's self self literating. Is that is that the right word? But basically, it's it's becoming, uh, you know, he's able to grasp it because he said it back to himself with almost Ariadne as a mediator. She's not really saying anything. She's in the room with him, and he's literally saying – actually, he said it to Maul, right? Isn't that what he's doing? He's basically telling – did he tell Maul that, or did he tell Ariadne? I forget. Not at this point. I'm not sure pers- exactly what – The perspective <laughs> – well, the perspective matters. Like when, when he's basically saying, you know, uh, you know, he's telling Maul, like, you know, I did this, and, and you know, and we went through, and, uh, you know, he's basically talking about all the things that he did. Uh, with her to get to that point and then eventually he ends up with you're just a shade of my wife you know he's basically saying all these things to himself um yeah. in order and that was the key like, that was the key the whole time was just to have the courage to be able to say these things to himself uh in a in the most literal way in the most complete way and once you do that um you know um okay Okay, i'm starting to i think i'm starting to get it so you're saying one more thing i want to add just is that you know i've read the subconscious for example it has no concept of time okay so put that in your brain and and you know crunch it but there's no concept of time so the symbols are all there your subconscious is trying to make sense of those symbols even years later because it has never been told that this symbol does not belong with this symbol. This symbol does not belong with this symbol. These things aren't connected together. But if you make those connections, then the subconscious can kind of like make sense of that. Does that make sense? Yeah, I'm starting to understand what you're saying. So you're saying that the importance of the ending is not whether the top is spinning or not at the end or whether it falls. The importance is that Cobb has basically rooted out the lie that he was that he was telling himself or like the, the conflict inside of himself. And he's kind of cleansed that conflict by overcoming Maul's grip on his life, which is really his own grip on his life. <laughs> oh yeah. I mean, it's the self-induced grip. Yeah. I mean, and it was funny cause <clears throat> I really thought you were talking more like the topic, the climactic moment, you know, where he kind of talks to himself, you know, in limbo uh, but yes, there's also the top that's spinning on the table. Um, I don't really, I don't think the top spinning on the table matters as much as maybe other people think it matters. You know, um, you know, I, I, you know, I, I don't know. I read all the different blurbs on the ending out there on the internet, of course. And, you know, people were like, the point is it doesn't, doesn't matter because he doesn't care whether it's real or not. And I'm like, I don't care about that. That's the part I don't care about. Not when I'm thinking about lessons to take away from this, um, because that's 
goes down that whole matrix rabbit hole of reality and yada yada yada. I, whatever. Um, that's not that's not where we're going with this at all, right? That's that's the point. And of course, some people will be disappointed not to have their their view of the ending confirmed <laughs> in this situation by uh, not necessarily Nolan experts, but people who are pretty passionate about Nolan. But uh, I do want to bring up one thing that in the movie, they if I think if you were to graph the sounds that the top is making on the table, you would just the audio essentially, right? You're, you're just graphing like the, the depth of the audio. You would, it would increase at the end. It sounds like it to me. I, I watched it a couple times, you know, I've watched it many times, but <laughs> a couple times recently. And it seems like you're hearing like more, you know, more turbulence in the top running, but in the script, this is, and this has been pointed out to me, I obviously didn't go to the script and just find this in the script. The last line here is behind him on the table, the spinning top is still spinning and we fade out. Yeah, which is typical Nolan. Um, but <laughs> I think you're getting to something here, so I'm going to let you keep going. Yeah, it's, it's it really doesn't matter. That's how I've read this. I don't think that Nolan thought about this and had a specific ending in mind. I think the whole point, as with many Nolan movies, is it's up to your interpretation. He doesn't feel the need to give you an ending. He's not going to give you a sequel. So you, as the as the viewer, have to choose for yourself how to interpret this. And you don't want to get stuck in the kind of low-level details, of, or at least for me, I don't want to get stuck in the low-level details of does the top keep spinning or does it not? And you've already started to touch on this, Derek, but I think, and this is going to be hopefully big <laughs> i love this quote this is this quote i'm just going to build it up a little bit here before i drop it on y'all but this quote really helped me to find freedom in how i view the world so i i hope that it's digestible and that it's relatable here but the quote is from carl rayner and it says in the torment of the insufficiency of everything attainable, we learn that ultimately in this world, there is no finished symphony. I'll repeat that slower this time. In the torment of the insufficiency of everything attainable. So basically saying like, it's painful how insufficient everything that we can potentially attain is, whether it's knowledge, physical things, whatever it is. It's like it always seems not to fill the fill the hole that we're we're hoping it's going to fill and then he he finishes we learn that ultimately in this world there is no finished symphony as humans it just seems natural to want things to come to closure you know i love when movies especially nolan does it perfectly right he brings such good closure at the end of these movies where everything all wraps itself around, you know, it, everything wraps around itself in a nice way. But the thing is, he also kind of teaches you a lesson there. He says, there's no finished symphony. You're not going to get an ending. You have to be okay. The ending is in your mind, not on the page. And I, I think Derek, that's more often than not how it is in life. That's really the rule is not that you get closure in a relationship or that you get closure in your in the work or the project that you're working on or whatever. More often than not, you don't get closure on that thing. It's an unfinished symphony. Well, yeah, I mean, I think to your point, 
you know, I would say the projects that um, the things that I've spent a significant amount of time on, you know, I've, I've gone through, I've innovated. Uh, and, and but then you have to realize that, you know, that's just the movement that you added. And if you want to be a real leader, you've got to realize where they always call it the inventor's dilemma. Um, but, you know, are you going to just control the invention or are you going to let other people take it and scale it and and, uh, and play with it? And, you know, it's the same thing with that's my idea. You can't change my idea. <laughs> you want your idea to grow? You know, now obviously there's a dark side to that. I'm not talking about that part. So whatever, um, because that's, you know, inception, right? Um, but, uh, you know, but, you know, your idea, your innovation, et cetera, as a leader, if you, um, if you truly want that idea to grow beyond you, you have to look at it and say, there is no finished symphony for your, you know, you as a particular person, you're going to hand that off to another composer, right? And uh, there is, there's a chain to be made you know, you to the next person and the next person to the next person, um, you're not going to be able to control it all. And I think that's kind of fun. That's probably one of the most fun aspects of leadership that I've ever, ever uh, experienced and innovation as well, uh, which is just, uh, you know, this, that, that idea there, Drew. So I don't think it's definitely not limiting at any, in any stretch. It sounds like it's limiting at first glance, but actually it's very freeing, like you say. It is. It helps you to. It just helps you to be more effective, I think, when you realize that there's not going to be closure on everything and the uncertainty is just okay. And if it's true of projects and things, then how much more true is that that there is no there's no finished symphony in humans. Right. So when you're mentoring someone, when you're building a team, if you're living under this world of black and white where there's there's a destination, this goes back to the up episode, right? Where there's a destination and that destination can be reached. And and when you get there, it's going to be a glory to behold. Like people are never going to become the symphony that you want them to be. And that's okay. It's not having that expectation of them is really perfectionism. What we want to do instead is have realistic expectations, understand that reality isn't just meant to be the way that I craft it. It's this shared dreaming experience that we all have working with each other to, to build this out. And for me, it's just how do we become more OK with uncertainty? And, and you know, as we always do on Wonder Tour, we end up somewhere balanced on most things. And so there, it's great to have certainty when you can have certainty. Right. When something is not so complicated and it's, you know, it's pretty short term, maybe you can have certainty on it. But in reality, most things are way more complicated than we imagine that they are, than even we can figure out that they are. Right. It's like the whole butterfly effect. Something's going to something happening across the world could impact what you're doing over here. And so we're kidding ourselves if we think that we're going to come to some crazy resolution at the end of this and it's really just going to bring fulfillment to us that what has to, what brings fulfillment to us is the process it's doing the thing it's working together it's helping others to grow even when they fail well it's just realizing that there's not just one composer in the world so you know we've talked about the idea that you know you your um, experience of reality is not the only one. 
right? And this is all related uh, to that for sure. Um, that there's like just like the shared dream is a composition of different people's influences. Uh, the people that are in the movie, the people that have the issues that are big enough to project out into the dream, you know, whatever, that's, that's, that's the issue there with, with, with shared composition, but let's just, you know, think of it in terms of pure composition from each person. I think that's a beautiful thing. And the more that you can co-compose with people, the more full and beautiful, the, the output, the, the music, uh, that gets made. Right. I love that. Absolutely love that. The co-composing is the beauty of it. Um, in the Silmarillion, we haven't done Lord of the Rings yet, but in the Silmarillion, which is kind of like the precursor to the Lord of the Rings and the Hobbit and everything else, you have this initial kind of like English creation narrative. It's meant that's what Tolkien actually made the Silmarillion to be is really like this kind of English creation narrative. And in it, you have um oh my my name the names of the gods are blanking but you basically have the creator god and the creator god is working with these lesser gods to create the world and even before the world is created they're they're this kind of musical composition they're they're like creating the music that's going to create the world and they're doing it together and so like as, as what ends up happening is that melkor kind of like the the leader of the bad guys ends up inserting his own like pride into the music and that's where evil starts to enter into the world but i love that idea sorry to take us off course because i do really love lord of the rings but the idea that like we're composing something together this thing isn't going to be perfect but that it doesn't have to be perfect for it to be beautiful yeah, you're going to have those moments, though, you know, and, and thanks. I mean, no, it's it's fine. I mean, it's it's good to pull in those things. I, I also thought of uh, um, Lion, Witch and the Wardrobe. Uh, that's also one where music was being played, um, you know, magicians, whatever it is, that one. Um, but the magician's nephew. Yeah, magician's nephew. There you go. Um, you know, it's uh, you've read everything. That's ridiculous. Um, but you know, you have, it's symbolism, right? It's the symbolism of every, every contribution. And, uh, I think when you, um, you, you hear somebody playing some music, you know, they might go off key for a second, you know, um, that's all part of it. You know, it may not be perfect. Um, you know, you can't expect that perfection in the, the overall symphony. Um, but overall, if you can get the music working together, harmoniously uh, more often than not you know that's that there is a beauty in that so yeah i do like that that metaphor for fruitful collaboration and it takes it kind of puts us you know out of the way that cobb kind of positions himself in the in the movie which is i think very narcissistically you know it's all about his issue Although he does give his share away, his whole share. He doesn't care about his share, but something much more valuable, you know, obviously is in pursuit, which is getting back to his kids and stuff. So, um, but anyway, other than that, it's mostly about him. Right. And I don't, I don't want to compose like that um, because 
that usually, it, well, it usually implodes on you and it, it's very reminiscent of a dream that's collapsing, um, is the innovation that you try to do on your own. That's the leadership that you try to do purely on your own. Um, you just kind of become a crazy guy talking about something, don't you? If you're trying yeah, to do it if all you're on composing, your own. If you're composing the music by yourself, oh, I, I can't, I can't speak to your position necessarily, but that's a lonely position and it just doesn't seem to be the way that we're built. Like, I don't think that we're built to compose alone. We're built to compose together. We got to find collaborators. We got to find diverse collaborators at that, right? Don't find, you know, you don't want to, if you're going to play some music, you don't want five trumpets and nothing else. <laughs> you want to have diverse. Oh, yeah. I mean, it will, and it gets old real quick. I think that's the key here is, um, kind of goes back to, you know, um, I don't want to say like novelty forever, but, you know, there is some aspect of that, that you have to keep the novelty going if you want to find the different angles to get things done. Um, it, it can be a challenge doing that on your own because, frankly, people get tired of hearing the same thing all the time. And as a single source of music, um, or let's say in terms of leadership, um, you know, this is why I, I've said before that you can't keep up optics all the time. You have to go into optical bursts. You have to pop out there with, here's a flash of greatness. And then you need to go back and recharge, um, because you don't have infinite amount of energy. So that's, you know, like you said, I think we're designed for that. Absolutely. We're designed for that. You know, we have a, a certain, um, you know, we're made for that, you know, kind of the, the connection, the cross connections, uh, when it comes to making these, uh, the, the, the symphony, the, the, you know, we have our own unfinished symphony, uh, but the co co composing. All right. Let's transition into our next moral here, Derek. Let's talk about levels of influence. You had this idea of comparing the levels of the dream to levels of influence. Where did you want to start there? Uh, let's look at the chasm between the people who are left behind uh, in the dream. So let's talk about the chemist. You know, the chemist is driving the van. He's in the first level of the dream. And he is going through all kind of hardship, actually. Right. And he's he's getting shot at in his van and he's trying to whip it around and all these different things. He ends up going off the bridge, which, you know, is all kind of planned. They all knew that that was somehow going to happen. He was going to find something and drive off into some water. Right. Um, but, but think about how they perceive what the chemist is going through. Um, you know, it's not a direct experience. So, you know, you've talked about first, second, third, we never really got to fourth order effects, but that's what limbo's like, right? And something happens, it causes a bit of a shock wave through the other levels, and it comes out as lightning in limbo. It comes out as blowing wind and a storm in limbo. Um, I think these are kind of transformations of influence as you go through the different levels. And isn't that how it works? That's exactly in, how it works. Yeah. Whether talk, yeah, talking about that. In terms of storytelling, I'm assuming is what you're saying. That's how it works, right? Is there are these levels of storytelling when you're trying to 
influence someone to to choose you know just to implant an idea in them um, or to to get funding for something to get your proposal pushed through whatever it might be there are these each layer has to build on itself i love that when they're sitting in the warehouse and eames is kind of the realist in this situation he's always bringing people back down to reality right he's like well we're back down to logic he's very reason oriented guy and he's just like look you can't concept you can't incept this idea of you know you i want to break up my father's empire it has to be easier you have to break this down into something that can be easily tied to a feeling and so that's how they get down to the you know my father doesn't want me to be like him and they um, they kind of try to break it down into something that's not politicized, that's not um, so that they're able to avoid those barriers, not not necessarily at the deeper levels, because at the deeper levels, they do have Eames impersonating um, his his faux uncle. And Eames is kind of playing with the details there a little bit because he's learning these details from Browning. And then he's kind of like playing them back on Fisher and stuff like that. But at the highest at the highest level and at the lowest level, right? Like the idea is the same. You're essentially pushing this idea down and you've got to figure out a simple way to tell that story, like level one through three. And I think that the mistake we make, this could be hearkening back to the Parks and Rec episode, is when you try to just kaboom it and you shoot for the, from the top level to the bottom level and you're just like, oh, like kaboom, that's the idea. Like that doesn't work generally. Almost that, that's really just not a good strategy. You need a different storytelling approach that's going to be this layered approach where you're going to build. You know, you start by building a story. For me, when I'm when I'm going to present something, I'm not just going to kick it off with a roadmap or a strategy or something like that. I'm going to kick it off with a couple slides that are pretty narrative based. They're mostly just pictures and a couple words, and I'm just telling a story to the audience so that they understand where we're at, or at least how I'm seeing things myself, and then they're able to interact with that story. Yeah, it's kind of like, uh, let's call it mind priming, right? Um, where you're just priming somebody, um, and you've got to stay, like you said, uh, it's not esoteric, it's not that at all, but you are staying at a distance, um, a narrative distance, um, the other thing, though, too, multiple levels, though, right, is the, uh, you know, how does a top level person see it versus someone who's doing the the doing the work, you know, so you've got a top management type, you know, level of uh, perspective. So there's just these different perspectives there. And then you have someone who's like, let's say, grassroots, right, and they're way down at the bottom and they're, you know, they have a totally different derivative of what's going on. Um, and I always, I always say this, that somebody at the top has essentially, uh, a, it's not a, it's not a laser beam type way to change things. They change it in big swaths. Their magic wand does not, it doesn't work down to the square millimeter. Right. <laughs> and, Think about that. So the van goes off the bridge, it's crashing into the water, and the implications go down through in a very specific way. But by the time it gets to limbo, the impact is pretty blunted, isn't it? By the time, yeah, the imp it is. 
It is in a way. It does. I, I like what you're saying here, though. This is actually perfect where you're layering on it. it I almost think of it like, you know, you're you're first you're layering on a first layer with a brush and then you're you're putting on and the first layer is going to cover like the whole canvas. Right. It's like this just thick layer, the background layer. You're just setting the context and then you're you're putting some more detail work on there and then you're putting some more detail work on there. That's you're right. That's what we're learning in here about how to tell a story. And it's awesome because it's kind of meta because it's like the story about how to tell a story because it is a movie, not real life um, that you're that you're gathering here. It's. I think for us, what I can take away from that is like just make sure that you have the simplest possible idea that you're trying to that you're trying to sell. And then once you have that simplest possible idea, find the find the wide brush. Um, iteration or start with a wide brush just tell the story then go a little bit more detailed right start filling in some of that then go add the detail brush right go down deep and by the time you're adding in the detail brush hopefully you somebody is following you through this narrative to the point where they can take on the idea that you're proposing and by the time you get down to that low level like you were saying like imagine who you're meeting there right now you've got you've got Eames Tom Hardy's character he's at that lower level all the way at that bottom level and he's doing the detail work he's doing the operations work he's dropping the thing he's doing you know arthur at the at the second level right he's figuring out how to do the elevator um so that he can drop them when they don't have any gravity and it's only because they have um the, the story is told all the way down in a cohesive manner that everybody is able to figure out their details or maybe they're not details because they're not the you know they're at level one and their their job at level one is I just, you know, level one maybe is like the the leadership, you know, you're like department leader, you're executive or something, right? Their job is just like, all right, take the van off the edge and create the drop. Underneath of that, like the team's going to figure out those details at the level two and three of how we're going to actually, you know, they're going to get into position to be able to take advantage of that drop for you. Yeah, and I think the key here, right, everybody knew at every level what the goal was. So... That's what I think is really good. Um, and there's also the way that the kick is transmitted from the top level down. I think that's where Inception's a little limited. Yes, I just said that. Inception's a little limited in its model that the kick goes down. But in reality, the kick goes back up too. And you can also kick in the middle. <laughs> so you need to think about, let's say you had three levels, right? You have a kick. At the top level down, we hear that all the time. That's very, I don't know, is that typical American style management, top down management? You've got to kick from the bottom up. That's grassroots led uh, initiatives, right? And then what is most often, uh, and you talk about this with the, uh, the, the sandwich model, but I, I still, I don't think anybody talks about the middle piece kicking up and down at the same time. Um, but that's, I'm just saying that, that those, if everyone can understand how their leadership has derivative effects up and down or all the way up or all the way down, and then you have the people who actually traverse the levels. Um, these are the dreamers, aren't they? <laughs> yeah, yeah. And I actually like what you just said there about the the middle levels being kind of the most challenging levels to navigate because you are kicking up and kicking down, which is really challenging. You're kind of like, uh, you're in, but that's exactly how they're meant to be and how they should be because you're you're in between the 
technical, the details, the day-to-day, the ops, the tactics, stuff like that, and the strategy and the vision at, on the on the high end of it. So it's, it is really hard, and that's oftentimes in an organization where the communication is lost. That's where the, that's where the inception breaks down is because the, the kick is not going up and down correctly. Like the top is probably, the top might be kicking correctly down, the bottom might be kicking correctly up, but the middle who has kind of the most complicated job of managing the interference of both of those things struggles in order to get the right things up and have them communicated and, and have them be strategically aligned and stuff like that. And they have trouble getting the stuff from the top and pushing it down and contextualizing it for the lower level dreamers. Yeah, because the synchronization you know, and I, I think this is what's interesting. You can bring in, you know, the concept of kick frequency. I'm not going to go too much into it, but how often do you need to kick? Um, I would say pretty dang often, um, you know, because uh, I, I don't know, I read something. I think it was MIT Sloan at one point and said basically um, nobody really knows what your strategy is, <laughs> not even your top leaders. And I thought that was good because if you don't make it succinct, if you don't make the the vision and the strategy succinct and repeatable and you know you got the the opera music which is my favorite kick of all time which you know whatever and and you know everybody knew that that was the signal right and i think that's an important point to make here you know everybody needs to know what the kick sounds like what the kick feels like how do we all know how do we have shared values right? To know when we got to kick it into high gear, when we need to make this schedule count um, and get the objectives achieved, uh, we have to be synchronized. And isn't that when it works really well? I think the more often that we kick in, generally speaking, the more often that we kick, the better aware we are of the strategy top to bottom, because it helps us just with our awareness of the strategy. It helps us to course correct where the strategy is wrong. Now you could definitely kick too often and that would be a nightmare. That kicking too often is, you're not gonna be able to keep people in that organization. <laughs> I don't think. Who is that? Is that a whiner? <laughs> yeah, uh, I don't know who that is. I didn't, I have, I didn't pre-prepare <laughs> anything for this one. I'm just thinking of it now. I don't like yeah, I don't. You don't want to kick too often because it seems like too much. It seems like it's either too much fine tuning or, you know, it's like because the whole point is that the strategy is not so granular that you need to kick every day um, in order to be updating it as it goes. But it's also not so high level that you need to be kicking once a year. Like you need to be kicking once a month or once a week or something like that, probably. Yeah, I do like the idea that you're leaving the frequency up to the situation, which I think is important. You know. I mean, this audience here is going to be like, yeah, I read between the lines on that. I understand. I mean, you know, the in the dreams, the kick was pretty dang special. Um, and here's the other thing. Once you kick, you don't get another opportunity for another one. So I think that's interesting. Um, I would look at that for translated into real life as the novelty of the initiative is over and it's time for a rebrand. What do you say? Hmm. That makes sense to me. Yeah. When you can no longer kick meaningfully, then it might be time to rebrand and you've been really good at this and helped me out with this a handful of times. Sometimes we've talked about this, I think once on wonder tour before when brands like lose their meaning, lose their meaning and it starts to become dull to people that's when you need like a slight pivot in a rebrand that way you can kick again because otherwise like 
people aren't feeling the kicks anymore. Yeah, and I, I don't know if that's just like when a vision maybe isn't achieved, you know, like fully. And I think it's like, okay, um, let's pick up the pieces, literally, because this vision shattered maybe. Um, you know, let's pick up the pieces from this particular vision. Let's put them back together and then let's wrap it up in another package, you know, so that you keep, you know, you have a unique kick, uh, a kick that really wakes up the sleeping collaborators, you know, because they, like you say, it's, it's gotten old, it's gotten, um, you know, kind of, they've heard it enough times or like, yeah, I hear that. I mean, I think it's really important to see the effects of the kick, you know, people waking up, right. We see that in the final scenes of the movie where they're all waking up at different moments, um, you know, and, and that's a, a very important, uh, you know, thing to see in the movie. Cause you know, obviously like, you know, you want to make sure everybody's okay. Right. Um, and when we're talking about reality here, we're talking about, uh, you know, initiatives, um, you know, you want to know that the kick worked. What are some ways that you know the kick worked Drew? Well, the easiest way is like at the end, if you're, if the kick is, you have to collaborate on the kick, right? You have to, ideally, you don't have to, right? You can kick, you can have a disjointed kick where like level three kicks to level two level, then there's some time and some understanding and level two kicks to level one. But really the way that it's going to work is when you kick from top to bottom or bottom to top and it's a succinct kick, it's all synchronized like it is at the end, right? Where they're all coming back out of it. And obviously, like we, we, there is an issue where like Cobb doesn't get doesn't come straight out with the kick, and neither does Saito um, at the end there. And that's just going to happen. That's just par for the course. You're never going to be able to get everybody all synchronized on the same kick when you have a larger organization of people. But I think you know that the kick worked when you're seeing bottom, the top to bottom alignment is easier. Um, if the kick pushing down, but you really know that your kick is working in your organization when the kick works from bottom to top and you're seeing the things that the people at the bottom are doing are aligning with the strategy at the top. So to the point where the, the people at the top are kind of like spinning this spinning this yarn of and, and can continue to push the yarn forward and can continue to identify, you know, what are our objectives and key results? How are we updating them over time? Are we achieving our strategic objectives? And the people at the bottom are just churning out this innovation that's allowing them to to continually have synchronized kicks back up based on whatever their workflow is. That's that's, you know, providing a meaningful impact to the strategy and, and helping you to achieve your roadmap. Is that kind of what you were thinking? So you're seeing <clears throat> so you're saying that you're seeing people incorporate it uh, into what they're outputting. Yeah, I, I, I do believe that. And. The other one that I see is, and then you you touched on it obviously, but you you're getting feedback from the top that is telling you that the kick went through. Again, this is a derivative effect, and it's up to you as a leader to notice the derivative effect of what you are putting out. Um, if you're not aware of it, if you're not tuned into it, you may miss it. Uh, you have to pick up the subtle cues and the ways that other people are pivoting and changing the way that they are doing things. Um, and look for the opposite too. Look for evidence that they are not. So don't be the hopeless optimist as well. I would I would caution that and say that, you know, oh, they just, they got more innovative. So now, yes, they're taking on my ideas. Well, maybe they're not. Maybe they're just reading that someplace else. Maybe there's someone else is 
has a stronger kick than you do. You know, maybe someone else has a stronger derivative influence than you do. Um, so it's up to you to verify that in some way. Um, and I'd say, I think this is where I'd go just a little bit deeper. Sorry for anybody who doesn't want to go deep, but I think that you're here for a reason. Um, but put a signature, I don't want to say a buzzword, but put some kind of a signature in your kick that everyone knows that that came from you. And don't do it for your ego, but do it so that you know that when you get responding kicks back, and I'm telling you, these kicks, we're, 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 we've totally translated into something that's symbolic. It could be anything. It could be the way someone says something. It could be a phrase. Um, it could be uh, just a formatting thing. You know, it, it could be a logo. It, you know, if someone adopts your logo, adopts your, your branding, um, right? I like that. Yeah. Having some, having some branding on your kicks. I mean, we all know what it feels like when we're trying to kick upwards or downwards and we're not getting traction on it. So having that little bit of branding there helps people to recognize, right? Oh, this is, this is Drew's music. Drew's trying to kick right now. So Drew's boss needs to realize that Drew's trying to kick here and Drew's boss's boss needs to realize that they're trying to kick something back up right now and that they're going to, you know, make sure it's aligned. You know, the, the, the top to bottom is making sure it's aligned. The bottom to top is basically like, make sure it's supported. <laughs> yeah. I mean, and eventually I think this is very interesting and I have been trying to do this just in general, but um, study the composers. And I would say that this is another moral that I would just transition into um, when something creative is made. And I don't want to say, I don't want to limit it just to, um, business or this movie, but I think I've been recently in the process of studying different composers and I'm not talking about music here. I'm saying anything that's creative, try to, it's a fun thought experiment, but try to like think through how this person was influenced by A, B, and C. Um, more often than not, you're going to see that this person was influenced, uh, from a variety of sources. And when it is in your career, um, you can see, you know, or you know, what's cool. I think people really respect it. Just ask them, how did you come up with this idea? People love talking about that. Um, and honestly, it can make you a better composer, um, because you're, you know, you took the time to study them. I mean, people love to talk about the things that they do. Don't they, Drew? It's one of the reasons that it's cool to kind of interview people who are in different fields than you are, because even if they're a similar personality type to you, they found out different ways to compose. And those different ways are more often than not, there's parts of those that can be applied practically to what you're doing as well. If you're willing to go through the work of listening, empathizing and trying to contextualize them and vice versa, you can obviously share way things about how you compose in your area and if that person is open to them then they can take them and they can contextualize them for themselves yeah i mean and this doesn't have to be a mentoring relationship either this could just be a one-off encounter um there's plenty of times when i've just seen somebody doing a really cool trick and i'm like or whatever you know or they have a really cool skill or they do something that's really interesting the technique whatever it may be um and i just i just straight up ask them i'm just curious about it and i'm just like How'd you do that? Where'd you learn that at? Um, yeah, that goes a long way. And honestly, that can really help the closed loop that we end up, we all end up kind of getting sucked into at times um, just because we're, I don't know, 
taking the least least energy route, I suppose. It's about the best way I can say it. <laughs> I'm with you. Do you wanna do you wanna move to the final quote here and just talk about this final quote that we absolutely love from this movie that's repeated multiple times? Yes, but I'm gonna ask that you unpack it. <laughs> okay. I'll I'll start by giving us the quote and then I'll unpack it. So let me set the scene for you. This quote Part of this quote is used multiple times. It's used in the opening of the movie. It's used in the helicopter scene. It's used in the closing of the movie. The one that we're going to talk to specifically is on the helicopter pad when Saito has got taken Arthur and Cobb and he's trying to sell them on the idea of incepting um, this, this thought into Fisher's head. And Cobb, who is desperately wanting to just get back to his children, he wants to believe, he says, if I were to do this, if I could do this, I'd need a guarantee. How do I know you can deliver? And Saito says, you don't, but I can. So do you want to take a leap of faith or become an old man filled with regret, waiting to die alone? This is extremely, extremely powerful quote for me. This has probably been... You know, we talk about how these movies have influenced our lives. This this influenced my life in a search for purpose, a search for meaning where maybe there wasn't some in areas or in all of my life. Let's unpack it now. So first, Cobb says, if I were to do this, if I could do this, I'd need a guarantee. How do I know you can deliver? So Cobb is speaking in absolutes here. He's trying to figure out if I could possibly even incept an idea. How do I know? that you can get me, you can have the charges dropped against me stateside. And Saito, as with many things in life, says, you don't have a guarantee, but I can. So he's asking to take him on faith, essentially. He's saying, you're, there is no way for me, you're, you're just gonna have to trust me. I can't, I can't do this. <laughs> I can't prove it to you, but I'll do it. And so he has to take him at his word and we all have times in our lives where we have to do that. And then he compounds on this by base, by making him an offer. He gives him contrasting options. And he says, so do you want to take a leap of faith or become an old man filled with regret, waiting to die alone? That's a wake up statement, if I've ever heard one. Yeah, I like this as a... <clears throat> um... You know, in the context of innovation, for example, every time I've ever innovated with somebody um, where you're really just working with one other person, um, I don't know, maybe it's just me as an introvert, but, you know, I I like this format. I like working with one other capable innovator, and between the two of us, we're able to do something great. But it definitely is that kind of relationship where and it's this is reciprocal faith in a relationship for sure, which is I can't guarantee it. But I will, you know, et cetera. I know I botched the quote. It's fine, though, because I'm saying it my own way, um, you know, and I've said that many times to others that I've innovated with. I can't guarantee that I'm going to be able to pump this innovation out, but I will do it. And um, I don't know. I just think that's a bit of an innovator's contract of sorts because you really don't know, you know, especially startups and different things. But there's always something. If you put 
if you have the nugget of the idea, uh, and I'll turn innovation or sorry, inception on its head a little bit in this case, but if you have the nugget of an idea that you know, this kernel of truth that you can implant in an innovation, then you can grow an innovation around an excellent idea like that with a leap of faith. Um, you know, so I think it works really well for innovation. How else does it work? So that you've talked about the business sense and on Wonder Tour, we sometimes maybe poorly straddle the self-development, <laughs> personal development, developing others, plus the business sense um, of things. Just to, because I think most people in our audience are somewhere in between there who are, are interested in both and those who aren't, hopefully we can touch on one or the other. I want to talk about it in the personal sense. So there's a, I didn't tell you this in advance, Derek, so you have no context of it, but there's a song that came out um, pretty soon after this movie came out. It's called The Kick, and it's sampling the soundtrack from Inception, which, by the way, I think we both agree is one of the great soundtracks of all time. It's positively superb, but he's sampling, it's the, it's the rapper 15 or XV, the Roman numeral, um, and he's sampling The Kick and rapping over top of it. And you can go out and check it out. It's not it. Uh, there's like a couple explicit words in there, but it's not like a negative song. It's a pause, very positive song. Um, but it's absolutely this. I, I love this song because. 15 is talking about growing up and how he had no context of dreaming. He had no context of this this greater world. He had no context of what success could look like. He grows up without a dad he raps about that he grows up his his brother his his little brother passes away i couldn't find exactly what happened i looked on the internet it might be i see that he did lose one of his best friends growing up so it might be that don't worry i'm bringing this back around but it, it absolutely i don't know if i'm just the the sappy emotional type but it breaks my heart to see the state that the world is in i'm just not embarrassed to say but sometimes i'm just overcome with emotion and I just enter a mournful state for how the world is. And it's not that I'm locked up and that I'm, I'm I'm kept from moving forward like Cobb is in this mournful state. It's that I'm in a reflective state. And Saito is trying to push us out of that, right? I can't say that I can even begin to imagine what 15 went through when he writes this song and he finds hope and, and, he, and he is able to write it with a metaphor to this movie of Inception. I don't know what his mind looks like. But I can maybe just begin to empathize. It's probably the word of the wonder tour of the past like 10 episodes. I know that this broken world took my sister the same way that it took his brother. So to bring this back to inception, when Saito convinces Cobb to take this job, when he gives us that that awesome quote, he says you have to do it on faith. He simply offers the options. Take a leap of faith or become an old man filled with regret. This hits close to home for me because we have a choice. We can choose to accept things as they are, to live out our days under the sun, uninhibited, or we can choose to stage a rebellion against the current state of the world. And I believe that Wonder Tour could just be a minuscule piece of that rebellion. If we can just alter one life here by choosing to develop good character for the good of others, if just one person can find purpose and hope, that's exactly why we're here, right? So for me, that statement, so do you want to take a leap of faith or become an old man filled with regret, waiting to die alone, tells me, are you just going to let things go? Are you just going to skate by? 
Are you just going to accept your fate? Or are you going to rage, to quote Interstellar, are you going to rage, rage against that, the, the damping of the light? And I choose to rage. And that's why, that's one of the reasons I'm on this Wonder Tour, Derek. Because I choose to rage against the dying of the light. <laughs> yeah. I can't follow that. You know, like I can follow it intellectually, but I, I'm not going to be able to top that. So that's that's good stuff. Um, it's just a launching. Yeah, point. I mean, it's just a launching point at the end. Yeah, it's just but to I say, mean, come I, on, we got to do yeah. something. <laughs> no, I want to. I want a new. I'm sorry. I want to do a whole episode on raging against the dying of the light uh, at some point. I mean, we can go back to, uh, you know, Interstellar just to frame it up, and then I'd love to, you know, talk about how that translates in every day because. You know, um, best thing I could think of here is that we've, we, we are, we're very disoriented today and fragmented. Um, we get spun around, we get sucked into things that are far off. Um, and this disconnects us from what we truly can affect. Um, it feels like a dream of sorts, you know, um, sometimes because you think, what, what can I do? What can I affect? Well, you know, it's the everyday. It's the people that you're around. Uh, maybe they're people that you're on video chat with, you know, uh, for your job, you know. Um, but it could be people that are you, know, you run into every day. And um, to be awake, to be aware, to not be um, busy de denying a truth or entertaining it, you know, um, you know, that's that's what we want to do on Wonder Tour. You're right, Drew. We want to we want to be the opposite of dream dreaming and being asleep. We want to be awake and we want to be uh, be able to help uh, others not be full of regret when they're older. You know, saying to themselves, um, "Shoulda, woulda, coulda." <laughs> you know, that's about the best way I can say. Um, you know, kind of what you were hearkening to. Obviously, yours was. Uh, much more emotional, and I appreciate that. Appreciate that a heck of a lot. Um, yeah, I, I think that's a great way to round it out today. I don't know what what else you wanted to hit on this, but I honestly, I think this that's a lot to soak on. Yeah, I'm definitely modeling some of my my leadership growth off of Saito. That's that's where I'm going to end it here, right? He just we started it with Saito in part one. We're ending it with Saito. What he says in in part two. He really is just an excellent leader when you look into it. It's it's at first, maybe the first time you watched the movie, you thought he was the bad guy because he's trying to. But but Nolan, Nolan makes that work because he's like, no, actually, he's trying to keep from there being a, a monopoly on energy in the world, which would mean like the most powerful person in the world would become Fisher and and uh, Browning and their company and stuff like that. So he's actually like kind of playing the rebel in this situation. He's trying to overcome the empire. I just, I've been, it's brought me a lot of joy to go on this wonder tour with you, Derek. <laughs> Likewise, Drew. Yeah, no, this is, this has been a really good one. And uh, I, I will be honest and say my brain is pretty much smoked at this point. <laughs> so, <laughs> oh, I'm with you. Oh man. So, um, you know, if you had anything that you wanted to add to this conversation and uh, you know, again, like, Remember that, and we I don't we really haven't said the word this time too much, but you know we want to be magnanimous leaders. Um, you know we want nothing more than to develop the character of others and to be giving 
uh, you know, and to be open and, um, you know, develop this, like, I don't know, say a healthy honesty, but, you know, nothing that is disrespectful to anybody or nothing that is in any way tearing anybody down. It's really just like, you know, look, this has been uh, my journey. This has been your journey, you know, and just try to share that with other people uh, in the hopes that, you know, that that could be encouraging, um, that that could be edifying to somebody else um, is really the best thing that we could see happen from this. And that's why we want to be magnanimous leaders. We truly do want to help others um, through the experiences that we've been through. So, yeah, if you have anything that you want to add on that, um, you know, hit us up on the Wonder Tour at Twitter. Next time, we'll be doing a deep dive on Doctor Strange, um, going back to Marvel, because there's a little bit of, uh, you know, with the mirror dimension, there's a little bit of uh, parallelism going on there with how, you know, some of the, the buildings and different things. If you look on the Inception cover or the poster for the movie, you, know, you can kind of see some parallelism there. So we thought, you know, we'd go back and uh, kind of hit on that one because that's a, it's a really good, really good story. A lot of good things to learn from uh, Doctor Strange. So without further ado, I will close this out and say not all who wonder are lost. We'll see you next time. <laughs>